If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open them up to Matthew chapter 22, if you would. We'll have a short scripture reading that deals with the feast, and uh, we're going to go on with the parables that have we've been going on all summer. And the parable that we actually connect with is the wedding banquet, and uh, certainly this is a time of a wedding banquet, and as you consider this banquet that God is going to give, a person has said, this is the greatest feast imaginable, given by the greatest monarch imaginable, and to be invited to this feast is the greatest privilege imaginable. And I hope you believe that as you consider the word of God. Now, the passage that talks about that is Matthew 22. So we'll start here. It's going to take us a while to get here, but really it's a, it's a great passage. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants, saying, tell those who are invited, see, I, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. If you represent God or a messenger of God in this world, that, those verses should impact us as we consider this great feast that pictures heaven. Now, as we come to this parable, it's, I just want to give you a setting, the historical setting of this. And uh, let me just read these verses from Matthew 19 to give you the setting of these parables. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. The idea is this journey is about a five to seven day journey from up in the north into Galilee, coming down to Jerusalem, and crowds followed him. And Jesus taught all the way till he made it to Jerusalem. And as he gets there, he's about to enter Passion Week, this is the end of his life as these parables are being shared. As he arrives in Jerusalem, he noted as he came to the temple site that there were many people selling sacrifices, inspection for sacrifices, and people were making money in the temple site, and it enraged Jesus. So he overthrew the tables and uh, he said, my, this house was meant to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. And you can imagine the authorities that were over the temple were enraged with what Jesus did. And that's when these religious leaders came to Jesus and said, by what authority are you doing this in our temple site? Jesus naturally asked them a question, and that's really where Pastor Kurt was last week as he went over a parable of the two sons. So actually, when you look at the setting of this, there are three parables that are being shared. The parable of the two sons, in which I think the religious leaders showed contempt for the father. Then the second one is the parable of the vineyard owner, which we're going to look at this morning. Religious leaders show their hatred for the son. And then you have the parable of the wedding feast, where the religious leaders show disdain for the messengers. 
three parables, and you can pick that up if you look at your text, and I can't have everything in front of you, but notice as he tells the parable of the two sons, after they listen to Jesus saying that, then Jesus begins, verse 33, listen to another parable. So they come one right after the other. When you get to chapter 2 and verse 1 that we read, it says, once more Jesus spoke to them in parables. All three of these parables go together. Pastor Kurt did a great job teaching repentance with the two sons. It was powerful. What we have here in the second parable that Jesus continues to teach is actually the motivation behind repentance. And so this parable is brought to our attention. Here, another parable, Jesus says to the crowd. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and he leased it to the tenants. And he went into another country when, when, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants, and I just want to underscore in your understanding how this plays out, to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, kill, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with these tenants? Now remember Pastor Kurt last week talked about the power of the question. Here's another question that he puts to them as he teaches them. Notice how they respond. The crowd says, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him fruits in their seasons. Here's where I'd like to go. The compassion and long-suffering of God goes far beyond any human reasoning and logic. As I meditated on this, how can I help us understand that? So I thought, let's give an illustration that's built on Jesus' illustration, but a little bit closer to home. So I want you to imagine that Sailorville here is a community, not necessarily a church. We'll call it a community, the Sailorville community. And uh, it's like a city-state that was, if you remember Greek history, there were city-states scattered throughout the country, no big federal government that oversaw anything. So let's imagine that there are city-states all across this country. There's no central government. But our city-state, the one of Sailorville, invests in another community in southern Iowa, and we build up a city-state there, and we invest a lot in that city-state, and um, with the agreement that that city-state will send back, at least at the beginning, part of their produce to us to help support for the sacrifice that we gave. 
We have a governor over our city-state. That's Governor Pat. He's over our city-state here. And we have a lieutenant governor, Abe. He's a lieutenant governor. At the right time, after it takes place, Pat and Abe talking, we're going to send two people down to gather what belongs to us. So they send Lisa and Curtis down to help collect what belongs to our city-state. As they go down, they beat up Curtis fairly bad. They're forced to come back. And... Uh, Curtis, you can imagine how Lisa feels, and Curtis comes back, and he's really in bad shape, and they bring back to report to our city-state here. And uh, Lieutenant Governor Abe says, that's it. We are not going to put up with this. Governor Pat said, no, wait, wait, wait. Uh, let's go another step. And Abe is just frustrated. He leaves. I leave with Abe. The governor says, let's, set down, let's send down two elder statesmen from our city state, and Lieutenant Governor Brad can take them down. So Brad goes down. He goes down with Don Godwin and Art Cross. <laughs> but Brad returns alone. because they mistreat Don and Art so badly that they don't even make it back. And Brad makes it back here, and he says to us, this is it. We can't have this. We've got forces. Let's do away with this community. Governor Pat said, no, I, I'd like to take another step. Lieutenant Governor Brad says, I'm out of here. And so Kurt becomes lieutenant governor. Kurt, I want you to take all the deacons down. They head down. None of them come back. Just Kurt. Kurt's in shock. He doesn't even know what to say. He comes back and tells Pat what happened. That's it, Kurt says. And Pat says, I'm going to send my son. Folks, this is the story. So how many of us would reason and say, Pat, you're in your sound mind. I'm in total agreement with what you're doing. How many of us would say that? As you consider that, if I could move this along, Here's a verse that we say without understanding. For God so loved the world, 
He gave his only begotten son. The love of God goes deeper than any human reasoning could ever understand. Jesus was endeavoring to give the motivation with compassion. Is it any wonder in the epistle that the apostle Paul prays this? And I don't know if you've ever thought this verse through. He prays that God, he says to the Ephesian believers, I grant, grant you, he's praying, to be strengthened, talking to the Ephesians, with power through his spirit in your inner being, that you, you Ephesian believer, may have the strength to comprehend. Have you ever thought of strength just to comprehend? But as you listen to this story, isn't it true? In our humanness, we can't even understand the depth of the love of God, can we? And so Paul prays for this. What is the breath? the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses, notice, that surpasses knowledge. Oh, yeah, we have a lot of knowledge. But we need far more than that. Now, there's another side of this story. That's the judgment of God. Here's a statement that I thought, as you consider this story, the just judgment of God flows out of this deep compassion when it's being rejected or ignored. If our human reasoning struggles to gain a grasp of the compassionate side of God, won't that same reasoning struggle with the judgment side? This is in the second parable. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, killed them, and the king was angry, and he sent his troops to destroy those murderers and to burn their city. God could justly condemn us without the appearance of his son. How much more with the appearance of his son. These people, as Jesus told this parable, do you remember what they said? What shall he do? And they'll seize these murderers and kill them. Most of the people who listened to that story never understood. They actually announced their own verdict because several days later, they'll lead Jesus to Calvary. How often do we listen to sermons and we don't even catch, hey, this is about us? As you consider what took place in their own prophecy, as to the fulfillment, Jerusalem was taken by Titus, the son of this emperor, the temple was destroyed. It is believed that more than a million Jews who had crowded into that city perished as the political unit Israel ceased to exist. Now I ask you, because I have a hard time watching violence. I just do. Could you watch the destruction of Jerusalem 
three times the number of people that live in Des Moines be totally obliterated and say on your lips, the judgment of God is just. Do you see how we struggle with the depths of the character of God and yet out of the character of God, when that deep love flows out of the character of God, judgment also flows with it. It's a deep parable. As we go on, In the second parable, the parable of the wedding feast, it zeroes in on the messengers. God's messengers are, in most cases, God's hand in extending compassionate. When a people reject God's compassion, they will reject his messengers. We're called to be messengers of this compassionate God, and I ask us, Do we reflect the character of God? Or, boy, if those people aren't going to accept the truth, I hope God judges them. How do we respond to people? Our problem? When we see the negative response of people, we shrink back from being vessels of mercy and disassociate ourselves from God's persistent love. We who have been impacted by the persistent love become silent. This story, these parables are deeper than any of us can imagine. And you know, the personal side of it, as, as, as you look at this, in fact, remember this about Isaiah in the Old Testament where God said, he considered the question, whom will I send and who will go for us? And notice Isaiah response. Then he said, here am I, send me. And I hope that's our response as we consider this parable. And you know, as, as you think of this second wedding parable, which is, is actually so powerful as well, do you know because of the Jewish rejection, that's why the gospel came to us, the Gentiles, All of that is being taught in these parables. You should sit down and listen and think because it impacts us. But this is going to be a wonderful feast that takes place when our Lord comes back. The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. That's us, folks. But when the king came in, he looked at a guest and he saw there a man who didn't have a wedding garment. Now remember, in this feast, because the king reached out into the highways, he provided wedding garments for every guest that came. But this man decided he didn't need that. And he said to him, friend, notice God's compassion. Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. 
So as we come to the end of these two parables, the principle is no one will enter the kingdom of heaven with the, without the provided wedding garment or coat of righteousness. It's one of my favorite parables for that reason. I use it in my third Bible study. Here's the reason. One, we are bankrupt not having a righteousness of our own, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That's the religious crowd, and that was certainly true of many of us. Then Jesus comes, for he, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. The cross is all about Jesus taking our sin, paying the price, and then offering to us his righteousness. The righteousness of God, it's not automatic. It only comes the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe the righteousness is offered because of the sacrifice, because of the death of the son that we read about. The righteousness of God is even offered to the rebels. That's us, folks, if you haven't picked up on it yet. It's offered, but you by faith have to come to Jesus and put your entire trust in his sacrifice, and then you'll be given a code of righteousness. Isaiah writes, I'll greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in him, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. By faith, that's how we gain the righteousness of Christ. Do you have that garment? Paul states in in his letter, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I pray that you, by faith, have embraced Christ in his righteousness. That's how one enters the kingdom. So as you take a quick look at these Four lesson points. The compassion and long-suffering of God go far beyond any human experience. Two, the just judgment of God flows out of his compassion, being rejected or ignored. Three, God's messengers are in most cases God's hands in extending his compassion when a people reject God's compassion, they will reject his messengers, and we have to be okay with that, just considering it a privilege to be God's messenger, impacted by his great love. And no one will enter the kingdom of heaven without the provided righteousness, the wedding garment. Do you have that garment? Let's pray this morning. As we get ready, for the communion service, let me just lead us in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you 
for telling these parables that display your deep love that goes beyond our human reasoning. Father, we're thankful for that. And Father, I pray by your spirit that you would help us to understand the depth of your love in a new way and the reason for your judgment. And Father, I also pray that you would cause us to be great messengers, reflecting the deep love that you have for mankind. May that be true of us in every area of our life, not only in reaching out to others, but also reaching out to our families, even within our marriage, I pray. And then, Father, I pray that if there is anyone here that has never been cloaked in that righteousness, that even this morning they would bow their head before you and their heart and ask to be clothed with that righteousness, placing their faith in Jesus. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.